You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Right now, let's talk about the retailers, the consumer. The consumer is dealing with a tremendous amount of inflation out there, potentially a recession on the horizon. How's that impacting what folks are actually buying out there in the stores? Mari Shore joins us. She's a senior equity analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Mari, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, we're kind of getting a little summer doldrums, but it's not going to be too soon. We'll be talking about back to school and the holidays. Just give us your overview of kind of how retailers are doing, how the consumers doing out there uh, in the malls of America. Yes, thanks so much for having me again. I think overall, we continue to see the consumer across income segment coming under additional pressure. And I think that's really following a couple of years of elevated food inflation, really catching up with people. On top of that, lower tax refunds, lower SNAP benefits are weighing on the low end consumer. So we've really seen the slowing across the board. And when we really dissect the different categories of PCE spend, we continue to see the consumer spending more on services over goods and within goods more on needs over wants. So I think it's a lot uh, more of the same. A lot of the same themes that we have been talking about continuing. Um, the quarter to date trends for many retailers are not good, and that places additional risk on their sales assumptions for the back half of the year, especially as you said, if we do enter a recession. If you do look at the 52-week high list in May, lots of consumer-oriented stocks on that. So Clorox, Hershey's, PepsiCo, Molson Coors. You also want to look at the discretionary side of things. McDonald's, AutoZone, Bookings, DR Horton. I want to get your thoughts on how you view this when it comes to the equity market and how you're advising clients to potentially position at this point. 
Yes, absolutely. It's a great question. And, you know, some of those names that you talked about are more geared towards services like eating out and travel, which are still two very strong areas within consumer. Outside of that, you mentioned a lot of the Staples companies, and we continue to see better results from those companies as consumers are forced to spend more on needs, as I was saying. And so, What we're trying to do really is basket our holdings between some of the more defensive names that are holding in better in a weakening macro macro backdrop, but also coupling that with higher beta names that in some cases have exposure to China or categories, as you mentioned, like eating out travel, even parts of, I would say, the athletic complex like Nike and Lululemon that continue to show very strong results. So, uh, Mari, talk to us about, I guess what I've, one of the things I noticed during the some of the earnings from the consumer products companies, whether it's Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble, their ability to pass along price increases uh, was pretty impressive to maintain margin. How long can you continue to do that? It's a great question, and food historically has been a category that has had very little pricing power. Of course, very competitive, lots of risk of substitution and trade down to private label. And it's really been several years of double-digit inflation in some of these categories. You know, now we've seen food at home inflation slow to the high single-digit range. But shockingly, we continue to see the consumer absorb that. You know, some of the companies are starting to talk about signs of trade down and private label gaining share. But for the most part, the consumer is really absorbing these higher costs. And I think in large part, it does reflect behavioral changes both during and post-pandemic, where people are spending more time at home, eating more at home, you know, more focused on health and wellness and, you know, the additional benefits that eating at home can offer versus eating out. And so for that reason, I think overall, we are a lot more positive on these companies being able to maintain pricing and not see huge negative volume offsets to that, both in terms of the Staples companies and the Staples retailers. So then is the worst past when it comes to the margin pain, when it comes to these consumer-focused companies? It's, It's a great question, and it really varies by category. What I would say is for a lot of the more discretionary exposed retailers that I focus on, even though we are seeing margin tailwinds from lower freight um, costs and in some cases lower markdowns, unfortunately shrink has become a much bigger headwind that all of these companies have had to deal with. And I think they're all working very hard to try to combat it. And then in addition, because of um, unfavorable category mix. So in other words, people buying more food versus apparel is a real negative for um, for uh, broader companies. And so unfortunately, that's an incremental margin headwind that these companies are having to face. So overall, I would say still lots of moving pieces on the margin line, and it really varies by category and brand in terms of who is best able to pass pass along the right. pricing. So, Mari, you know, let's talk on, on the, the luxury side of the retail space. If I walk down 
Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue today, I will see lots of European uh, tourists and then hopefully they're spending money. Uh, but I, what I won't see is Chinese uh, tourists yet. When do you expect, because that's such a big part of the global luxury market uh, is a purchasing power of, of Chinese consumers. When do you expect that to really be seen? That's a great question. Unfortunately, the resumption of international travel out of China has been very slow, right? And that has been a big issue for European luxury companies, even for some beauty companies like Estee Lauder that are more exposed to travel retail. Um, and it seems like you know, this recovery post-COVID in China is just taking a lot longer than anyone expected. So it could be, you know, another six to 12 months before we really start to see that consumer come back in a bigger way. You know, in the meantime, these companies are all seeing um, still pretty strong business in China. In Europe, the business is actually surprisingly resilient. And a lot of the companies have talked about the return of the Middle Eastern tourists, which has helped. Mm. But in North America, you know, even despite the return of some European tourism, unfortunately, the business has weakened for a lot of luxury companies, whether that be, you know, the luxury department stores that we know, like the Saks of the world, or even some of the luxury e-com businesses like a far a far fetch, for instance, or, you know, the, the European luxury companies that have exposure to North America, they've all talked about a slowdown. And that really speaks to, you know, the first point that I was making, which is that across income segment, we are seeing the consumers coming under additional pressure. And remember, a lot of these categories, too, were surprisingly strong during the pandemic. And so I think part of the slowdown more recently just reflects going up against a couple, a couple of years of more difficult comparisons. All right, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Mari Shore, Senior Equity Analyst at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, giving us a broad overview of what's happening uh, with the consumer out there, uh, both in terms of retail sales and just consumer uh, products in general. So generally, you know, the, the consumer seems pretty darn strong given that those inflation headwinds and then maybe right. some economic slowdown in the future. Also looking at the ratio of equal weight discretionary versus staples, it stopped hitting a low, but as you know, discretionary really been driven by home builder stocks as well this year. Paul. Yep, absolutely. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jess Metten here with Paul Sweeney in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here looking at the SPX, the Standard & Poor's 500, we quote it all the time. It's up 10% year to date. Uh, but when you take the SPY, that is the S&P 500 Equal Weight Index, 
that's actually down 0.5% year to date, showing you, you know, the real, uh, what's really driving this market index is higher, which are a handful, handful of, of names. those tech yep, names, those definitely. big tech names. Uh, so really, I don't recall it ever being like that, but that kind of, to me, just goes to a lack of breadth in this market, I it's know for the, a lot of actually, it's the fourth biggest divergence uh, when yep. you're looking at mega cap versus yep. the equal weight. That makes I, I just haven't seen it that much. So Sam Dunlop, maybe he has. He's the CIO at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. So Sam, it, it, what's that tell you when you look at the SPX versus the SPY? Big big divergence there. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We the the divergence and, and the surge that we've seen uh, notably in, in tech this year has, has been uh, you know pretty extraordinary. Uh, but you know where we tend to focus are uh, in the fixed income markets and particularly uh, related to, to residential mortgage backed securities. And today's data, particularly the, the Case Shiller Index, um, you know, kind of really corroborated our view that. Housing in particular uh, is, is really beginning to stabilize here, which is, is a real positive, particularly for, for mortgage-backed securities. So, Sam, how are you advising clients to position at this moment? Yeah, so, you know, we really think that uh, we are at uh, near peak policy and peak volatility, uh, particularly as it relates to, to the Fed and, and the aggressive path that we've seen. Uh, clearly thus far to, to tamp down the aggressive inflation we saw, you know, on the heels of, of COVID. Uh, but we see that pol- that peak policy really nearing here uh, and taking advantage of, of the extraordinary elevated levels of, of implied interest rate volatility, uh, which, in our opinion, is set to decline here as the Fed reverses course uh, really in the second half of this year, which we think will be a, a real positive for mortgage-backed securities. And uh, taking advantage of the extremely high yields uh, that investors can can capture today, just given the historically wide spread, and as well as just the all-in, uh, you know, high current yields in today's environment. Sam, I know earlier this year you were predicting potentially a brief recession in the U.S. Do you still think that's going to happen? Yeah, you know, we're still in the recession camp, particularly for the second half of, of this year. As I mentioned earlier, is we're really reaching, in our view, peak policy and peak volatility here, are really on the heels of of the recent um, bank crisis that we we saw clearly in, in March and in the first quarter of this year. Uh, we see that really tightening lending conditions, notably, uh, and you'll begin to see that really uh, filter through in the growth data uh, in, in the latter part of 2023. Uh, really see the Fed pausing and potentially easing here late this year and and into early next. Sam, talk to us about kind of the credit quality you're seeing out there in some of the portfolios, given this big move uh, up in mortgage rates. Absolutely. You know, the the credit quality has been pretty extraordinary, uh, Paul. The the level of delinquencies and and residential mortgage-backed securities is really hovering at historic lows. Uh, you haven't seen a real uptick in delinquencies just given how robust the labor market is. Uh, but, you know, given our expectation that we will have a recession later this year, uh, that would naturally cause an uptick in unemployment. But what we uh, feel really good about is, again, back to, you know, today's case Shiller numbers, uh, it's just the stability of home prices. Uh, clearly, you know, not a crash in home prices. We expect, you know, a stabilization here. Uh, so an uptick in delinquencies would would create, a, you know, an uptick in, in potential defaults and, and mortgages in particular. Uh, but given that they're backed by, you know, the ultimate house, the ultimate collateral of the U.S. house uh, and our expectation that those remain 
uh, stable here, just given the historically tight supply of U.S. housing. Uh, we, we think the credit really holds up quite well uh, amid the, the recession that we expect again later this year. What are you hearing from clients at this point? Or what are they concerned about? What are they maybe less fearful of after this year's rally, obviously, in the equity market? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think everyone, you know, particularly in fixed income, is, is despite the historic outflows that you saw in 2022, uh, you've seen very little inflows, particularly into active fixed income in 2023. Uh, you know, in our view and, and talking to clients is the vast majority of the world, whether, you know, you're in Madrid or you're in Stockholm or you're in Atlanta or New York, uh, the, the, the vast majority of fixed income investors seem to be hiding out on the front end of the T-bill curve. Uh, and money market funds, especially amid the, the recent bank crisis that we've seen. So, uh, you know, while most investors clearly expect that uh, you know, we may be near, you know, peak policy here, uh, that, you know, the undeniable opportunity on the front end uh, is, is hard to argue against. But in our view, you know, really, as I mentioned earlier, would recommend taking advantage of, of extending out the curve and taking advantage of the historically wide spreads and, and mortgage-backed securities and particularly longer duration uh, fixed income here to, to lock in those, those high current yields and wide spreads. So I'm looking at the uh, Bloomberg U.S. MBS index total return value. And the good news is it's up 0.63%, and that's a good news versus last year when all the fixed income was really under underwater. But it lags some of the other parts of the fixed income space this year. So what's your call on MBS kind of relative to other places I could put my money uh, in fixed income? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. You know, MBS is really the, the big headwind this year, as I mentioned earlier, has just been this huge surge that we saw in implied interest rate volatility. Uh, you know, given that the Fed went 19 times and, and is implementing, you know, QT in earnest here, uh, that has, you know, caused an uptick in volatility. We thought that we were really kind of reaching, uh, you know, peak uh, implied interest rate volatility amid the guilt crash of late last year. Uh, but you saw it subsequently surge again in the first quarter, uh, you know, amid our kind of own guilt crash here in the U.S. that just came home to roost in the U.S. banks. Uh, that, that caused vol to, to surge to, you know, near-term highs. Uh, when volatility surges, that, that puts a lot of pressure on mortgage-backed security spreads as investors that are long mortgages are naturally short, short volatility, uh, given the, you know, the, the option to prepay from the underlying borrowers. And so uh, that's been a headwind uh, for, for mortgages this year as, as you know, the, the surge in volatility and elevated levels of volatility has kept spreads historically wide. And you've also just seen clearly, you know, a big uh, retreat of the of the big buyer base, uh, particularly post-COVID, as quantitative tightening has left the Fed uh, on the sidelines clearly and shrinking the investment portfolio of their mortgage-backed securities holdings, as well as banks, uh, given the, the recent crisis and some of the ALM issues that, that most banks face. They've been, uh, you know, have not been buying nearly as much uh, mortgage-backed securities, and in, in fact, they've been selling. So, you've had the headwind of both volatility as well as a retreat of the right. of the buyer base, banks, and and yep. uh, and the Fed owning you know, over sixty percent, uh, really putting a headwind here. But we see it as a huge opportunity and definitely right. uh, a focus for for patient investors. All right, Sam. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate getting your thoughts there, Sam Dunlop. He's a CIO at Angel Oak Capital Advisors focusing on the mortgage-backed securities market. Again, some headwinds out there with obviously the rising interest rates. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The Tape.
TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk commodities right now, Jess. Yes, Let's talk switch it up. rare earth commodities or rare earth metals. We can do that with our next guest, Dr. Luisa Moreno. She is the president of Defense Metals Corporation. Defense Metals is one of the biggest mineral exploration companies in the world that focuses on the acquisition of rare earths minerals deposits commonly used in the electric power market, military, and national security. Um, Dr. Moreno, thank you so much for, for joining us here. Talk to us about rare earths and how important they are to a lot of these new technologies, whether it's electric vehicles or whatever. Where do we find this stuff? Is it is that whole supply chain a big risk for us uh, going forward? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, thank you for having me. So um, China does control, as you said, a significant percentage of, uh, of the mining as well as the processing and the production of the final product. And they go in everything that you can imagine. So they use in fertilizers. Uh, they also use, I think, one of the most important applications right now is to make magnets, uh, the strongest known uh, magnets, uh, and uh, they go uh, into uh, permanent magnet motors used in electric vehicles. They also go uh, in these magnets they used in MRI machines for 3D imaging. Uh, they used in wind turbines, but you also find them in computers and um, and 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 the, com- the compounds of 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 rare earth. You could also use them uh, in many other uh, medical. Uh, applications as well as LED lights and so forth. It's, it's endless applications, really. Now, so they are. Go ahead. Oh, continue. <laughs> <laughs> they they are critical for defense. Uh, so hence the name defense metals. Uh, so they are using missiles and, and you know uh, night vision goggles and many other defense applications and military applications as well. What I wanted to know is just how dependent is the U.S. on China when it comes to these rare earth elements? Right. So. China mines 60% or so um, of, the, of, the total, of the total rare earth. The U.S. Uh, currently mines about 40,000 of the estimated, say, 300,000 tons. Um, but um, they, they mine it, they concentrate the minerals uh, to make it, uh, I guess, easier to process and for transportation. And all of that is sent to China. Um, so... Highly dependent. That is the the answer. So the, the, not just U.S. The, the world really uh, highly dependent on on this um, on China for for these for these for these uh, materials. Right. Well, g- well, given the rising geopolitical tensions between China and the West and in the U.S. in particular, uh, you know, how at risk is the West here? Are, is it is there an opportunity to maybe or there is there an incentive to try to source these minerals from other parts of the world? Yes, so we do have some production um, and refinery out of China, uh, and production of metals out of China as well, um, but um, probably not sufficient um, for, um, for for everything. Because even if we are able to say purchase some of these elements uh, from, say, Malaysia, um, so there's a Linus Corporation. They they mine in Australia. They process. In, in Malaysia, so even if you're able to um, get them, you still, you know, as far as getting them in, in electric vehicles, you still you still need to build a supply chain, and we are just in the process of doing that. Uh, I my understanding is that the U.S. government, as well as Canadian government, 
uh, and the Australian government um, and the EU are, are looking to, to, to fund a supply chain for the rare earths and other strategic metals. And uh, there are several companies, chemical companies, interested in building separation facilities and so forth. So the supply chain has to be built, but first we need to, to mine them in a higher, uh, a higher amount, let's say. Talk to us about the talent shortage that the rare earths industry actually faces right now. It is, it is significant, um, given that um, China has been the main uh, country producing rare earths for a long time and refining them and producing end products. You know, we do not have that talent um, outside, um, you know, uh, in the West. There is some in Asia, as I mentioned, uh, perhaps uh, Vietnam in Thailand. There's some processing, some metal making, Japan as well. But uh, in in the West, there is not much uh, production uh, downstream downstream processing and and production of these metals or, or magnets. Uh, so we we will have to develop that talent, um, and um, and it will take time. So so what is the policy of China about exporting these rare earths uh, minerals right now? Right now, uh, it's just an internal policy. So a while ago, back in 2005, they started putting quotas, and then uh, there was challenges. Uh, you know, uh, the the U.S., Europe, and uh, other countries they basically filed a complaint in the World Trade Organization against China, which China lost, and then they stopped the quotas. Uh, but they have production quotas internally, where they tell. Um, you know, companies, how much to produce. And the government um, have been acquiring percentages uh, of, this, of, this, of, this, of these companies and merging them. So they have internally a very strong uh, control over the production of, of rare earths and uh, how much is produced. Could they outright just ban the exports and then the rest of the world's really in a difficult spot? If, um, if we upset them seriously... They might. <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's definitely a possibility, but um, but it has to be something really uh, significant, I think, uh, like war. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, I I don't think they would they would do that. They would have a lot to lose as well, uh, because they, as I said, they uh, they produce a lot of uh, of the products and products, and they sell them around the world as well. And, and obviously, they consume them as well. Uh, for many of the <clears throat> advanced technologies that they produce. What are you monitoring when it comes to the legislation in the U.S.? I know last month there was a bipartisan bill to that was introduced to offer basically a tax credit for establishing rare earth magnet production in the U.S. What are you seeing on this front? I think that's really, really good. Uh, however, in order to make magnets... Um, you know, assuming that you know how to make them uh, and you, you have the right team to do that first. The only issue is where you're going to ha- get your alloys. And uh, and to make alloys, you need the metals. Uh, and where are these metals being made? And to make these metals, you need to, to mine them and make uh, oxides first. So again, we have to think about the supply chain. In the U.S., you do mine them, but currently uh, MP materials is not yet uh, processing them into chemical compounds and separating them, which is the second stage, and uh, definitely not making metals. And as far as I know, they're not making alloys either. Uh, so all of those steps have to be um, 
concluded before you can make magnets. You know, if I'm in the tech industry, I want to send an, you know, kind of a person over there to kind of smooth things out. I send Tim Cook from Apple. Who do I send for rare earth minerals? Sorry, can you ask that question again? I mean, if, if, if I'm in the tech industry and I want to send an emissary right. to China, I send Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple Computer. Is there somebody in the rare earth business that can go over to China and say, hey, can we be friends? Oh, wow. Um, yes, I guess I guess uh, the folks from, from MP Materials, the multi-billion dollar market cap, they're one of the largest uh, uh, rare earth companies in the world. There are not many. Right. <laughs> but, uh, well, there are many. Uh, but mostly in China. Yeah. Um, so, so outside China, they're not that, that many. There's not so that, that many. Is, we can't. You know, yeah. no. that, well, that, not, not that are producing. That, is. Yeah. that might um, be part of the problem, yeah. All right, uh, exactly. Dr. Luisa Moreno, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Dr. Moreno is the president of Defense Metals Corporation. Uh, this is a, a company that focuses on the rare earths mineral deposits. Uh, and they're used in electric power vehicles. They're used in military applications, national security. So a big, big issue. And uh, unfortunately, uh, for many in the West, uh, they're dependent upon China for sourcing and supplying those rare earths minerals. So definitely a challenge for a number of industries. So it's worth keeping uh, on top of that. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I want to get right to our C-suite conversation today. Randall Atkins, CEO of Ramico Resources. Uh, Randall, describe Ramico Resources. You guys are in the coal business. Describe what you do at, at your company. Sure. We're actually in the metallurgic coal business, uh, which is used to make steel, uh, distinguished from the thermal coal business, which is used for power. Uh, we also uh, recently announced a very significant discovery of an extremely large rare earth deposit at uh, one of our properties in Wyoming. So we soon hope to be also in the critical mineral business. Who are you a key supplier to? We are key supplier to both the domestic and international steel industry. Uh, we sell to about 20 countries overseas and also supply uh, coking coal to uh, virtually all of the uh, North American steel markets. So metallurgical coal, uh, again, used in... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, metallurgical coal used in steel making. Talk to us about the trends in that business. What are you seeing? What have you seen the last couple of years? What's your outlook? Sure. So I have a sort of a, a one-liner which I use, which is that met coal is a proxy for steel. Steel is a proxy for a nation's GDP. So as the overall economy moves, so does the steel industry. Uh, obviously, at the moment, uh, the steel industry, as is the domestic and most international economies, suffering from uh, the twin bouts of both uh, an inflationary situation over the past 18 months, as well as uh, the recessionary uh, winds that are blowing at the moment. So uh, the steel industry is muted at the moment domestically, uh, and basically sales of metallurgic coal have uh, similarly fallen a, a softer pattern uh, than certainly last year. If the steel industry is muted right now, what does that tell us about the direction of the U.S. economy in particular? Well, the steel industry is, is always a leading indicator. Uh, you know, most of the steel used in the U.S. goes for things such as cars, 
pipes, construction. Uh, you know, if you just go down that list, I think cars are, are frankly still having a, a, a reasonably strong market. But certainly pipes used in the oil industry and construction are very muted at this point in time. So I think to that extent, Met Coal is a bit of a leading indicator as well uh, in that same regard. So are you seeing that in your orders from your steel customers that they're just ordering less coal? Well, the, the, the uh, steel industry has sort of various seasons uh, to it. Uh, this is what's a, called a shoulder season, uh, which really goes through the middle part of the summer, and then they restock. So uh, this is the point of, in the year when typically coal demand is a little softer than normal, but it picks up during the summer and then also increases throughout the fall. During those softer months, how does that impact your company as well as the industry overall? Well, it basically we calibrate our production to, to meet our demand requirements uh, so that during the softer periods we are, we are producing slightly lower than typically. But uh, usually what we also do is have a sales book which accounts for that so that we will sell domestically on, a, on an annual basis and we'll sell internationally on a spot basis. So really the, the, the trigger is the spot sales internationally in softer periods. So with so many industries going green, really thinking about their economic footprint, how does that impact your company, your business? Well, interestingly, we are kind of uh, a, a forerunner in the coal industry in that for a number of years we have been doing research on how coal can be used and really the carbon within coal could be used to make advanced products, carbon products and materials. So our basic business in the metallurgic coal business, of course, steel is used for things such as windmills, solar uh, farms, etc. But we've also branched out. As I mentioned, we have a rare earth project uh, that we're getting started in Wyoming. We also have patents on about uh, 60 different types of uses of coal uh, for making carbon products from things such as graphene, graphite, uh, carbon fibers, things of that nature. It's interesting that you're bringing up sort of the rare earth metals. We actually had a guest on earlier that dug deep into that. I was curious as far as when you have maybe potential exposure toward China or other areas in the global economy, how that impacts your business if you are seeing economies like that slowing. Sure. Well, certainly China is not only the largest producer of metallurgic coal, but also the largest user of metallurgic coal. Uh, Typically, the United States does not sell a lot of met coal into China. That really is done mostly from Australia. Having said that, the the market pricing uh, that is set in the Asian markets because between that trade between Australia and China certainly has a major impact on what pricing is, uh, uh, is around the world. So to the extent that that pricing has been lower this year, that certainly is translated into the Atlantic uh, metallurgic coal markets, which is what we sell into. So, Randall, how, how do you grow your business? Is it taking share away from competitors in terms of supplying coal to the steel industry? Is it new lines of business? Is it new markets? How do you grow your business going forward? Well, it's, it's a little bit of all of the above. Certainly, um, coal all coals are not created equal. And so, you know, the type of metallurgic coal we produce has certain quality and qualitative advantages 
to certain customers. So we find our niches there. Uh, but we grow our business really in a couple ways. One, of course, we are really the only uh, domestic coal company which is dramatically increasing its production. We plan to basically double in size over the next three to four years. Um, and we're also the only one that is branching out into new uses of carbon, uh, as I mentioned earlier, for such things as critical minerals as well as carbon products. Just real quickly, Randall, where, where do you source your coal typically? Where are your mines? Our mines are in the sort of southern Appalachian area down around southern West Virginia and Virginia. Uh, and as I mentioned, we also have a rare earth play that is out in Wyoming in sort of the Powder River Basin. Interesting. All right. Really interesting business. Randall Atkins, thank you so much for joining us. Randall Atkins is the CEO of Ramico Resources. It's a NASDAQ-traded stock, METC, Met Coal, is what I take away from that. Uh, He's had a long uh, career, and of course, I think the highlight of his career is he got his undergraduate degree from Duke (laughs) University, you know, so set up for some good stuff there. Uh, But, you know, you think about that, the coal business, it's just, where's the future of coal? Well, I guess, you know, for, for power, not so much. Uh, but for perhaps the metallurgical coal used in steel, maybe still, you know, some good growth there. And these rare earth minerals that keep yeah. coming up in our conversations, Paul. They keep coming up in our conversation. Uh, so we'll see. But it was an interesting conversation. You don't talk coal very often, but we do. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Just met Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I want to get right to our next guest, entering conversation, I believe. Dr. Maureen Dunn, President and CEO of Autism Community Ventures, joins us. Uh, Dr. Dunn, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Could you just educate us what you are doing at Autism Community Ventures? Yeah. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I've, I've spent most of my career um, trying to help neurodivergent job seeker achieve opportunities uh, that are consistent with their skill level. And I've done that um, in a number of different ways and looking forward to our conversation. How many U.S. adults are diagnosed with autism? Yeah, so so I, first of all, I'd say I, I do a lot of work um, in neurodiversity more generally. Um, so you know, the, the neuro, which encompasses, you know, beyond autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and MFU. So in the U.S., there's uh, over 60 million people that fall under that umbrella. So 15 to 20% of the global population falls under the neurodivergent umbrella. But with autism in particular, um, it's according to the statistics by the CDC, 
it's been increasing um, dramatically, especially over the last 10 years. And uh, just recently, there's, you know, been another um, uh, communication from the CDC that it's, it, it's also increased. I think it's uh, about one in 35 people now. So what, I mean, we think of autism, but give us other, I guess, neurodiversification issues or challenges that are common out there in the community that may be a, a challenge for uh, employers to try to get their, their, their heads around. Sure, yes. Yeah. So, and, and just for context, um, neurodiversification, it's a concept I've, I've brought up in a number of my prior keynotes. And, and so the, how to think about that is, I mean, obviously, uh, diversification is an important concept, right, for portfolio management, for investment. And so the idea there is that, you know, when, when and a lot of research uh, supports this, is then when all minds in a group are highly correlated in terms of their experiences, in terms of their cognitive tendencies, analytical skills, perceptual skills, that the potential for overlapping cognitive and conceptual blind spots became a real risk. And so the idea of neurodiversification is ahead against that risk. And I personally think that especially the looking uh, at the labor shortage that, that we have and, uh, you know, the future of work in terms of innovation and creativity being paramount that employers should be um, really interested in including more neurodivergent workers. In terms of challenges, um, there was a UK study back in 2020 from the Institute of Leadership and Management that showed over 50% of employers openly admitted that they would not hire a neurodivergent job seeker. So there's a lot of challenges that unfortunately have nothing to do with um, the ability or skill of a neurodivergent person to do the work if given the opportunity, but it has a lot to do with some inbuilt biases, the ways in which um, the interview processes work that could disadvantage some neurodivergent workers. There's a lot of of issues um, that can become obstacles to successful employment. What do companies need to do to truly make things more inclusive for neurodivergent people? Yeah, so in the work that I do, um, there's, you know, I, I think it's important to go beyond the sort of more superficial training of, okay, let's tick the boxes here. We have, you know, X number of neurodivergent people that, that we've hired. Um, it's important to really work on organizational culture in a deeper way. And so some of the things that I do is, you know, we, uh, we organize neurodiversity-friendly company audits, just getting uh, the, the whole organization to see the value of different kinds of minds working together. Um, you know, that sort of, you know, going beyond, you could start with a value statement, but then, you know, going beyond that, right? So that getting everyone on the same page where, okay, we really value different kinds of minds coming to the table and we see why this is so important to our organization. Um, and then going beyond that so that the actual, practices on a daily basis support that value. What companies or industries stand out to you at this point that are doing it right so far? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So there, there has been a lot of activity, uh, especially like autism at work programs. I know um, JP Morgan has one where they've done some research and they showed that their autistic employees were actually 48% faster, 92% more productive um, than their neurotypical peers that were hired for the same jobs. But I'd also say that in my work, um, I found, you know, I have so many stories and I'm, I'm actually a 
working on a book that's being released by Wiley uh, early early next year, um, where I have did you know did a lot of interviews with people around the world, and um, one of the things that's come out a lot is that there's a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs even that are neurodivergent, but there's a there's a percentage of them that would have preferred to have uh, a job and have applied, you know, to hundreds, sometimes thousands of jobs, but couldn't get through that interview process, even though a lot of them have PhDs and, you know, are really distinguished people and then ended up being successful entrepreneurs. So there's, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic where I think there's, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot more awareness of the skills and the talents that neurodivergent people bring to the table. But I think there is more um, that can be done for companies to really understand how to best include them and retain that talent. That could be really important, to, uh, you know, also to the to, to that company's future. Thinking about, again, going back to, like, all this research about um, neurodivergent people being a hedge against groupthink, right? We know that so many of the uh, uh, business failures end up being because there was no one at the table there that saw saw the risks or, was, or you know, frankly, was willing to take uh, risk their social status to bring up the risks that they saw. And that's, you know, that could be really important. I think I think there's it's definitely something that um, uh, employers should be taking seriously going forward. All right, Dr. Maureen Dunn, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Maureen Dunn is a president and CEO of Autism Community uh, Ventures. We appreciate getting a few minutes of her time here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.